there. G'day, good to see you. Uh, if, um, if you could keep uh, outline open, so it's sort of the buff coloured thing, uh, that would be really helpful. Keep Isaiah 65 open because that's the passage that uh, we're going to be in tonight. And I'll get this moving. Here we go. No, we're good. Oops. Yeah, we're all good. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken, that in your grace and in your mercy uh, towards us, you call out to us again and again and again and again. Uh, Father, we thank you that you are a God who relentlessly pursues us, uh, despite what we deserve. And Father, we thank you for the glorious hope that you relentlessly pursue us to look forward to. And so I pray, Father, that you would help Each of us here, uh, myself included, to not be trapped in the hopes of this world, but the hopes of what uh, we see in this passage tonight. And um, Father, please change us by your spirit. Um, Soften our hearts so that our hopes might be yours. And um, we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Uh, Despite some occasional bad press, uh, the Old Testament uh, generally has a fairly straightforward story that it's trying to tell about the relationship between Israel and Israel. Uh, and God, I, I guess if you were to sort of cast the story of the Old Testament as a bit of a movie, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, I, I reckon if you were to try to come up with a plot, you'd basically call it basically an action romance with a bit of tragedy thrown in. Can you imagine this? Right, because really the story of the Old Testament is this, right, that a noble prince, what does he do? Rescues a slave girl. He falls in love with her. They marry. And then she breaks his heart through her unfaithfulness. Right? Isn't that the story of the Bible? That's just Ezekiel 16, just in case you're wondering. That's the story of the Bible. Israel, God's people, are a slave girl. He rescues them out of Egypt, falls in love with this people. He marries them, makes a covenant with them. I will be your people. No, I will be your God. You will be my people. Right? And then they're in the land and they break his heart. They're unfaithful. They worship other gods. They run off. Uh, with them, uh, they forsake the God who rescued them out of slavery. It's a, it's a tragedy instead of a romance. Uh, it ends, well, how does it end? Uh, that's what we're going to see uh, in Isaiah tonight. And it's, it's interesting that God's pattern with Israel is exactly the same for all of the Bible, is that God relentlessly pursues his people, relentlessly. Right? You know, at the start of Isaiah 65 here in verse 1, it's like Isaiah reminds us of this. He says, here I am, here I am, here I am. In other words, God is always calling out to us. We're always like Israel. We refuse him. We're unfaithful. And yet he continues to call out. And here, as we've seen through Isaiah, God is actually promising a glorious future for his people that he relentlessly pursues if they turn back to him. That's what he's promising them. And we've seen this throughout Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is one of the the great prophets of the the Old Testament. He wrote 700 years before Jesus. And really, if you were to talk about what state the marriage between God and his people was at, at this time, are things good? No. Are things rocky? Are things on the verge of divorce? Yes. Yeah. And Isaiah 65, as we come to the climax of this book, Isaiah says that God actually has a glorious, new, resurrected future for his people. And in fact, it's not just for Israel, it's for the whole creation. God's going to remake this earth and he's going to remake 
the heavens. Something brand new is going to happen. Uh, Come and have a look at Isaiah 65, verse 17, of what lays ahead for all of the creation, including us. This is what we've got to look forward to. God says, For I will create, verse 17, a new heaven and a new earth. The past events would not be remembered or even come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the youth will die at a hundred years, and the one who misses a hundred years will be cursed. It's a magnificent description, right? And did you notice how the first line of that prophecy of what we've got to look forward to in the future... What verse of the Bible does it remind you of? Revelation 21? Maybe well, well, well before that. What does it remind you of? Genesis 1 verse 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now Isaiah says, what God did back in the beginning, I'm going to do again. What God did back in Eden, he's going to repeat. But in fact, he's going to recreate the world. But it'll be more magnificent than the one he created the first time. And so Isaiah gives us this poetic snapshot of what the new creation is going to look like. And it's magnificent, yeah? It's almost surreal. The new Jerusalem will be a joy and its people will be a delight. Verse 18. Imagine that. People's faces on the trains in the morning, smiling all the way to the city. Every single one of them happy to be going to work. Could you imagine that? No? Right. Right? It's hard to imagine. Or the fullness of life that it talks about. In verse 20, it says children will survive and thrive. No longer will a young person's life be cut tragically short. Won't that be a magnificent day? When young ones who shouldn't die so early, die so early. But God says it will be a day when that won't happen. Death won't have a hold on us anymore. What does it say in verse 20? The one who misses a hundred years will be cursed. Right? What, what does that mean? Well, does that mean that we're going to sort of die in the new creation? No. It's just a poetic understatement. It's basically saying, it's a poetic way of saying that death will no longer have any power over us. A youth that lives to 100 is just a little kid. Right? 100 years in the new creation, absolutely nothing. Hard to imagine. Or how about the security that will be ours? Look at verse 21. God says, people will build houses and actually live in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They'll not build and others live in them and they'll not plant and others eat. Isn't that so different to our life now? We spend so much time sort of insecure. We spend so much time worrying about the future, worrying if the next GFC is going to take our house, worrying if it's going to take our job. And yet we get to the new creation. There'll be no insecurity. You will build your house and you will get to live in it. Could you imagine if you were in Syria right now listening to this? Do you, know, do you know right now that the fourth largest city in Jordan is the refugee camp that's filled with people from Syria? Do you know that 575,000 Syrians have crossed the borders into Jordan in the last few months? Can you imagine what this verse would be like to them? They have built houses and they have mortgages to banks in Syria and they will never live in their houses ever again. 
Right? Imagine the insecurity of their life. But God promises one day you will build your house and you will get to live in it and no one else will. Beautiful promise. Or imagine the day when our labour will labour and it won't be without success. All of our work will be totally rewarding. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Look at verse 22. He says, My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour without success or bear children destined for disaster. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. And so I, I think what the Bible is saying is that we're still going to work in the new creation, except it won't be tough anymore. Right? Every day at work, you'll achieve something good. What does it say, verse 22? My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They'll not labour without success. Right? On, on, the new heavens, on the new earth, your work will be an absolute delight every day. Right? You'll bounce out of bed. Right? Lord, what work have you got for me today? Right? And you'll be eternally excited about that. And you'll get on the train with a smile on your face. Right? And you'll come home. You can't wait to do it again. Is that hard to imagine? Have I just reminded you of tomorrow morning? Sorry about that. Right? Today's a work day for me, not for you. Right? You'll bounce out of bed for all of eternity. And not only that, verse 17, the past events won't even come to mind. I'm not sure what you put in that category. But imagine that, the annoying boss, the long hours, the pointless meetings, a distant memory. Or maybe you've got something far less trivial than that that you want to put in the past. It won't even be remembered. Beautiful, yeah? Hard to imagine? Maybe. Or how about verse 25, the peace that we'll enjoy? Isaiah says, The wolf and the lamb will feed together instead of the wolf eating the lamb, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Now, I don't think this is saying that lions will become herbivores. Right? I don't think that's true. I think they'll remain carnivores. Otherwise, you'll see a lot of unhappy lions in the new creation, right? Sort of just moping around. Uh, maybe they will be herbivores in the new creation. We, we don't know. But what it seems to be saying is it's not saying that. It's saying the same picture. Remember what we saw in Isaiah 11? How the toddler will play in the cobra's pit? In other words, there'll be peace. The people who used to be at enemies with each other will actually be at peace with each other. Families that used to fight will be together. Nations that used to fight will be together. We won't need the UN to sort out the Syrian mess. It'll be gone. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Is this hard to imagine? A life of joy, a life of security, a life where work is actually pleasant, a life where the creation is renewed... Well, this is exactly what the new creation and the kingdom of God is all about. And so do you think, I, I don't know, I, I think this is true. Do you think that our hope that we look forward to that, do you think it does something to us? Do you think it, do you think it actually does give you hope, does it? Um, I think it does. And it's sort of like a holiday that you look forward to. You, you know, I don't know if you've, have you ever been on holidays where uh, you didn't plan it? You know, like you sort of all of a sudden came across these holidays. It's on Friday and you go on holidays and you're on holidays from the next Monday. It's never as good, right? Why is it never as good? Because you haven't had that chance to look forward to it. Yeah? Like in two weeks' time, I'm going on holidays. And as a family, we've been talking about it for about a month now, right? 
and we're going up to Burley Heads and we're going to stay in a unit and it's looking over the beach and the kids are saying, is it the same bed as last time? And we're like, yes, it's the same bed as last time. And is it the same beach there? And it's like, yep, the beach hasn't moved. And are we going to go to Dream World? And it's like, yes, we're going to go to Dream World. And so all these things, and they look forward in hope. And I think the kids enjoy the hope of the holiday more than the actual holiday itself, right? And part of the joy of going on holidays is looking forward to the holiday. It's exactly the same as being a Christian, right? The hope of what is to come that we fix our eyes on now helps us to cope with what is here. And I reckon it sets you free. I reckon it really does. Because there may be some things in this life that uh, we're going to miss out on. Um, And for each of us, that's different. Uh, I'll give you a trivial example from me, right? Um, And ultimately, all of these things, it doesn't matter. Right? I'd like to travel more. It's, it's, not a, it's not a hidden secret. <laughs> right? Uh, I would love to travel. I, I've never been to Europe. I'd love to go. It's, it's been by choice. No, I, I could have gone, but I haven't gone. I, I've never been to Europe. I'd love to go. Right? Who, who here like, I'd love to see the Terracotta Warriors in China. Who would love to see that? Right? Admit it. You, you want to go and see it. Right? I'd love to climb Everest. Who wants to do that? Right? I don't think this is going to happen, but I would love to do all of these things, right? But it's true that in light of the fact that we'll inherit the new heavens and the new earth, it doesn't matter if some of those things that we hope for in this life don't happen. Because our hope for the new heavens and the new earth actually helps us to sit loose with some of the things of this age. It doesn't matter if I don't get them. Because the new heavens and the new earth awaits. Right? And what we can do now is we can actually rejoice. Rejoice in the prospect of what is to come in hope, the holiday that's on the way. And by the way, I reckon I'll have plenty of time to climb Everest in the new creation. Yeah? Or I may not. Okay? So when God recreates the earth, will he leave Everest there? I don't think the Bible says one or the other. I think he might. He may not, he may get rid of it, he may make another mountain that's more magnificent and I'll train for 600 years or however long it takes me to train and I'm going to climb the thing, right? And hopefully some of you will come with me, right? And we will do that. But someone reminded me in our Bible study this week and they will remain anonymous that that is not the most magnificent thing that we look forward to in the new creation. The most magnificent thing we look forward to in the new creation is that right in the middle of this new city is Jesus, And we'll be with him, and we'll worship him, and we'll work for him, and we'll see the one face-to-face that we've given our lives to, to this point. Now, won't that be magnificent? You see, the problem is, for lots of us, is that I think we've got heaven wrong a little bit. And those of you who've heard me speak on this before, uh, here I go again on my, we've got heaven wrong, okay? But I imagine that we go, we, lots of us think of pop culture heaven, not biblical heaven, right? So most of us have a view of heaven that is based on art and philosophy and basically Hollywood more than it is the Bible. Right? I'll give you an example. Greek philosophy says that basically when you die, you'll end up this bodiless soul that will sort of waft around for all of eternity. Right? That's a Greek idea. Uh, it's very similar in Buddhism and Hinduism. So nirvana in Buddhism, and you may correct me if this isn't right, as far as I understand, it involves a complete end of all matter and a complete end of all consciousness. So that's what a Buddhist looks forward to. 
right? Or Hinduism has this concept of moksha, right? Where the Atman, the soul, gets to escape from this endless cycle of reincarnation again and again and again. So the idea of Greek philosophy and the Eastern religions is that we would escape physicality and we would escape this world, right? It's the same as Hollywood, right? Doesn't Hollywood have this view of heaven? It's this airy-fairy, weird existence in the cloud where you've got men in white tights who are sort of, you know, playing harps and, you know, sort of John Paul Young style, for those who are old enough to remember that, with sort of yellow teeth on his sort of stairway to heaven. And, you know, it's this sort of weird, ethereal existence that no self-respecting man would ever want to be a part of, right? What guy, when I paint that picture of men in tights, playing harps, eating Philadelphia cheese, and all that ridiculous stuff that Hollywood says, do you look forward to that? Do you want to go there? Of course you don't want to go there. And you don't have to go there, because there's nothing like biblical heaven. And by the way, we won't be in heaven forever anyway. Because we will die, and if you trust in Christ, you will be in heaven. Right, what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And so right now, Jesus has a body. And that thief does not. And he is with Jesus, enjoying him. But on the last day, uh, he won't be there. Because heaven is a temporary waiting room for the new creation except without the bad magazines, right? Because on the resurrection day, what will happen is that all of us will be raised. We'll get our new bodies. God will get rid of all evil and he'll recreate the earth and we will live there with him on it. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Um, We won't go to heaven forever. Heaven will come to earth. And that's exactly what John is talking about in Revelation chapter 1. Do you notice, see how I put the red? I saw a new heavens and a new earth. You see how John in Revelation is picking up Isaiah 65, as Rob showed us, and is actually picking up Genesis 1. This is right at the end of the Bible. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people, that's us, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. So it's a metaphor, but God's city, so to speak, will come and be here on earth. Right? It's here on earth that God will come and dwell with us, his people. It's here on earth that Jesus will reign. It's here on earth that we will see Jesus face to face. You'll see him. You'll be able to stand in distance and be able to see him. So our final destination is not out of this world. right? It's this creation renovated, recreated, fixed and transformed. Here on earth we'll be with Jesus. That's the promise. And C.S. Lewis, I love C.S. Lewis. Do you like, you've ever read C.S. Lewis stuff? Right? He says this, that we shouldn't allow people to mock us out of this hope. So he says this about uh, when people try and do that. He says, There's no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of the new heaven and the new earth ridiculous by saying they don't want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is to say that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups... Uh, They should not talk about them. Uh, All the imagery, harps, 
crowns, gold, or of course symbolic attempts to express the inexpressible. In other words, we can't know exactly what the new heavens and new earth is going to look like. I don't know if Everest is going to be there, but what I do know is that it will be real and it will be physical and it will be magnificent. And all of the imagery that's used is pointing towards a reality in a poetic way. Except that everything that ruins our existence now, our relationship with God and with each other, just won't be there. And it won't be Sydney 2.0, just in case you're wondering. It'll be much better than that. If Sydney 2.0 is your hope, then you're an impoverished person, right? Because we will see Jesus face to face. And it's there with him that we'll enjoy a place of no injustice, of enjoyable work, of peaceful relationships, and of security with him. Much better than Sydney 2.0. Do you reckon we've had a taste of this already? Do you think we have? I think we have. When Jesus came the first time, and when he wandered around Palestine, and he started doing things, what did he start to do? He started to heal sick people. And he started to raise the dead. And he started to point forward to what his kingdom would be like in the future. Um, Jesus said this, right? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. He says, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. In other words, Jesus says, right, the kingdom of God has come amongst you. And who is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's saying the rule of God in this world has come in me. And I tell you what, I'm going to give you a bit of a snapshot of what it's going to look like. So evil is going to be overthrown in the final kingdom. So what does he do? There are, there's a, there's a demon-possessed man, and he casts the demons out of him. He puts them into pigs, and he throws them in the lake. And he says there's going to be no frail people in this new creation. So what does he do? He heals a crippled man. There's going to be no death in this new creation. So what does he do? He rises from the dead. You see, Jesus is giving us a preview, a trailer, a bit of a snapshot of what we're looking forward to. Friends, this is what awaits us. But you know, um, the more sobering question is, who's going to be there? We know what it's going to be like, um, but who's going to be there? Well, Isaiah says... uh, not those who don't want to be. Uh, look at verse 8 of Isaiah 65. Um, who's going to be there? He says this. The Lord says this, verse 8. As the new wine is found in a bunch of grapes, and one says, don't destroy it, for there's some good in it, so I'll act because of my servants and not destroy them all. Here he's talking about Israel. I'll produce descendants from Jacob and heirs to my mountains from Judah. My chosen ones will possess this and my servants will dwell there. You see, this beautiful picture of the new creation, the sobering thing is that it won't be for everyone. Because on the other hand, what does he say? Verse 11, have a look. He says, But you who abandon the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, false gods... I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will kneel down to be slaughtered, because I called, and you did not answer. I spoke, and you did not hear. You did what was evil in my sight, and chose what I did not delight in. And you see, that's the tragedy of it, isn't it? 
God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and they went, no, I don't want a bar of you, Isaiah, and I don't want a bar of your God. Thanks very much. And so if you're here, and you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus, can I say, please don't refuse him. He is promising this glorious new creation for you. He made you. And he loves you and he sent the Lord Jesus to die for you and he's preparing a place for you. So don't, don't refuse him. Don't refuse him. For, for what does Isaiah say, verse 13? Have a look. It says, Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. My servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you'll be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you'll be put to shame. My servants will shout for joy from a glad heart, but you'll cry out from an anguished heart, and you will lament out of a broken spirit. You see, the absolute tragedy of this is that out of the cry of an anguished heart and a broken spirit, there'll be some after the resurrection who will know what they've missed out on, and they'll be literally weeping at, the, at that fact. That is the picture that Isaiah paints. They will know what they're missing. Now, what do we do with this? We know what's to come. We know who's going to be there. Now, what do we do with it? You ever heard that saying, um, too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly use? You ever heard that? People, you're too heavenly-minded. You're too focused on heaven to be of any use here. You ever heard that? Maybe it's an old saying, right? Uh, can I say, Ridiculous. Right? C.S. Lewis agrees. This is why I love C.S. Lewis. He agrees with me. Don't you love people who agree with you? Right. He says this. He says, if you look through history, it's English, so you've got to take this into account, and I'm not doing an accent. Um, if you look through history, it seems that Christians who do most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set to see the Roman world, uh, Empire converted the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were preoccupied with the new heaven and the new earth. It is since, this is for us maybe, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at the new heaven and the new earth and you'll get earth thrown in here and now. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Can you see what he's saying? If you're, he's not saying you don't have to live, like he was a human. <laughs> he had to live. But what he's saying is if all of your hopes and all of your dreams and everything you look forward to and everything you focus on is on earth, what you do will amount to a whole lot of not nothing. It'll just, it, you'll survive, but it won't be particularly productive. If your focus is on the new heavens and the new earth, then you will do things productively, not only for this age, but the age to come. Because you'll be looked forward to the heavens and new heavens and new earth, and you'll know who's going to be there and who's not, and you'll do something about that. Now, why is it that our zeal for that sometimes dwindles? Do you ever wonder that? You ever wonder why our, our sort of goes like this? And as you get older, the youthful enthusiasm that you used to have for Jesus and his kingdom and Jesus' return and the new creation, it just grows a bit dull. Why does that happen? 
You ever wonder why that happens? Why does it grow dull? Right. Is it because, for those of us a little bit older, if, if yours hasn't grown dull yet, just can you phase out for a few minutes? Right. Okay. But if it has grown dull, why is that? Is that because you've become a bit more mature or I've become a bit more measured? Is it because you're worried about family who, or friends who perhaps are not, won't be there in the new creation with you? Is, is, is that it? Perhaps the biggest reason why our hope grows dull for the new creation is that, like C.S. Lewis says, we become unhealthily attached to now. I think that's right. We love our life, right? We don't need the new creation. We love where we live. We love this city. We love everything about it. We love our friends. Good food, good times, good travel, good music, good holidays. It's fantastic. And we sort of think, well, heaven... I don't know if I need it. And even though there's untold poverty in the world, and even though we know that when Jesus returns, he's going to put an end to all the injustices, we much prefer our private blessed moments over Jesus' glorious new creation. Now, can I say, by the way, it's okay to love your life, but to enjoy here more than there is to go against exactly what Isaiah is saying here. And your life will be fairly unproductive for the kingdom. And I've discovered this myself. <laughs> My times of least productivity for God in his kingdom has been the times when I've been focused right here and not on what is to come. Because I've clung on really tightly to the things of this world and I haven't been able to sit loose enough with them in order to be productive for his kingdom. It's true. And by the way, if Sydney 2.0 is what you're looking forward to, friends, your dreams are way too small and you set the bar way too low for we will be with Jesus in the new creation. We will enjoy him physically. You will see him in bodily form face to face and you'll go to work each day smiling because you've seen Jesus and you'll pick the fruit off the tree or kill the calf to make steaks or whatever you're going to, what are you going to do you're going to be a butcher a baker a builder or whatever you are in the new creation you will do it enjoying him and enjoying each other and friends if you've got a better hope than that can you come and tell me about it because i don't know what's better than that why don't i pray let's pray uh heavenly father we just thank you for the magnificent hope of the new creation Father, we pray that you would help us to have our eyes fixed on the new heavens and the new earth and what you have in store for us there. Father, we thank you that Jesus will be in the midst of this city, that we will love him, serve him, work for him and each other for all of eternity in a place of joy and security. And, and Father, we just long for that day. We pray you will bring it on soon. Uh, Father, we also pray that uh, we know that there are those that we love who um, at the moment will be in anguish on that day. And so we pray in your mercy, Father, that wouldn't be the case and that you would use us to reach them so that they might enjoy the new creation with us. And uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.